0: Hello! And welcome to the There Will Be Blood episode of Slate Money Goes to the Movies. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Anna Shemansky. Hello. And I'm also here with my multi-talented colleague, Nyla Boodoo. Nyla, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Tell us about yourself.
1: So I have a morning news podcast called Axios Today, which everyone who pays any attention to Axios knows we are all about smart brevity. So it's a 10-minute morning news show that comes out every weekday morning. And my background is, as you know, Felix, I am also a alum of Reuters and started in the business world and spent years as a business reporter before I moved into audio and public broadcasting and now podcasting.
0: Wow. All three of us have worked for Reuters. All three of us have a background in business journalism. All three of us have watched There Will Be Blood, the 2007 Paul Thomas Anderson movie, which we are about to talk about. Spoiler alert, we didn't love it, but it is an interesting movie all the same. Stay tuned for that, and especially for Anna Szymanski teaching us all about Christian iconography. Who knew the depths that she had? All of that coming up on Slate Money Goes to the Movies. Okay, so Nyla, most of our guests on this mini-season of Slate Money have picked a film that was dear to their hearts and that they saw in their childhood and that has lived in their soul for decades. This is not the case with you.
1: This is not Trading Places.
0: (laughs) So, had you ever even seen this movie before, like, this week?
1: I had not seen this before two days ago.
0: So... The first question has to be, what possessed you to pick this movie?
1: I think Anna actually has a really good answer to this. I'm going to let Anna answer, and then I'm going to chime in.
0: Anna, what possessed what possessed Nyla to pick this movie?
2: So before we started taping, we were talking about how I saw this film when it was released in 2007, and I convinced myself I should like it because it was one of these films that became part of the canon, and everyone said how amazing it was. And then rewatching it again, now I'm like, yeah, I really don't like this film very much. <laughs> but it is this canonical film of the last 20 years.
1: And that is why I picked it. Because it's always been a film that I thought I should see. And then it's never I'm never going to pick it. It's going to be at the bottom of my list. You know, like when you put things on your Netflix list, then that means to me that I'm never going to watch them. That's where this was, which is why I picked it. Because I thought, oh, and now I'm really going to watch it.
0: So I love this idea that it's a bit like in the olden days when Netflix was DVDs that would arrive in the mail, and you had a queue, and there were all of these incredibly worthy movies on the queue, and you never quite got to the worthy movies because you were always like, I am i don't want to watch that tonight. This was a forcing mechanism for you. This is your way... To force yourself to finally watch this movie, and after having sat through two and a half hours of Daniel Day Lewis being actually, what is your final verdict?
1: I actually was very impressed. In it's, let me put it this way: I think it's one of those movies that you know is a great film because you're kind of turning it over in your mind. And you, there's just a lot to think about and process. And so from that standpoint, I think it's a incredible thing because of all of the pieces that you want to process. It is not something that is enjoyable to watch. I, at least I didn't think it was. <laughs> but so you, I do think it's a very interesting to talk about and process.
0: So one of the reasons you know that it's a great film, you slacked me when... You started watching this movie, and you're like, and I was like, yeah, it's gonna take a while until you get to the first line of dialogue. Like, you have this very um tourish, serious thing that Paul Thomas Anderson does, where you spend like twenty five minutes until anyone says anything, which is a, a, always a sign of great seriousness in a movie. He's not gonna get to any plot anytime soon.
1: To which I responded to, yes, it's just like Wally. It's what? true, except
2: that Wally's a better
1: movie. <laughs> Wally is a better movie. You're right. I completely agree with you.
0: Okay, so this is Slate Money. So, Anna, as an investigation and interrogation of capitalism, how does there will be blood compared to Wally, which is also a very interesting sort of treatise on capitalism?
2: Yeah, so maybe I'll take a somewhat of a step back from that question. <laughs> I would say the two most important things this film is trying to say about capitalism that Paul Thomas Anderson is clearly trying to say about capitalism. One thing is this relationship between religion and capitalism and in America, this somewhat incestuous relationship where one kind of needs the other, one is on top of the other until the end when capitalism is victorious and ends with the line, I'm finished, clearly a biblical reference to, you know, Christ, it is finished. So. That, that's one part of what this film is kind of clearly getting at.
0: Okay, let me stop you there because I'm not a Christian. What is this Christ it is finished it's what reference that they totally on the didn't cross.
1: get?
2: Yeah. Oh, no, the, this film is like, it's so overwrought with religious symbolism. I mean, the title is, in, is from Exodus. There's a baby in a basket. That's a Moses reference. A, the child is anointed with oil. A father forsakes his son. <laughs>
1: Even the font is like biblical. The font is like King yeah. James font. Yeah, and then, and then I think the other side
2: of this fits into something that I think you often see in films, American films, about business and capitalism, especially dramas about business and capitalism, which is a somewhat of a morality tale. This real suspicion of capitalism, despite the fact that capitalism is the reason that Hollywood exists, but nonetheless. And this, at the end of the film... The person who becomes very successful must be taken down in one way or another. If this is this film is very similar to Citizen Kane. The ending is this idea that he has to be punished. He is punished through his son. He is punished through his lack of a family.
0: So the idea is the because we are coming out of liberal Hollywood, we paint this portrait of a rapacious capitalist who gets his comeuppance in some way at the end, living alone in some grand, expensive mansion that gives him no pleasure.
1: I think it's also not subtle. Like, it's just, it's a a rather heavy-handed message of the costs and the sacrifices uh, that one must make to get ahead in capitalism, in a capitalist society, which is namely... You know, abandoning your son. And, you know, I think the line when he says, I don't like people, I think it's kind of like the perfect line. It's just like, I don't really like people anyway. And then, of course, all these people kind of get killed along the way that he literally kills. So,
3: I have a competition in me. I, I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people.
2: I think it's interesting with the idea of him literally killing and this idea of death and people being injured throughout the film is that the way the music works in this film, it's like a horror film. You are always waiting for this horrible thing to happen and it you know, tends to come out of nowhere. And, you know, the early stages of industrial, the industrial age, you had these very violent industries. I mean, most people who worked in these industries, that was their daily life that they could die at any day in, in, even today, working in oil rigs is still actually very, very dangerous. And so I thought that that was something that was interesting. There, there was an element of the people's reality at that time was somewhat of a horror show.
3: Which
1: is, I feel like the only. I think that's a very Upton Sinclair, right? Like, I think that's really the adaptation. When you think about the jungle or the cost to the everyday worker, I think that's kind of also what completely hits you over the head with this, right?
2: And this is based on, well, very loosely based on like an Upton Sinclair novel, oil exclamation point. Which
0: which you know, I mean, if you is did you read the novel? I have to admit, I do not know this novel.
2: I've read the Jungle. Ever read this novel? (laughs)
1: I've read The Jungle. That's the only Upton Sinclair novel everyone's read.
2: Every Upton Sinclair novel ends with somebody becoming a communist. That is how every Upton Sinclair
0: novel ends. So this, to me, was a portrait, as you say, of the much sort of redder in tooth and claw period of expansionary capitalism in America. Do you think I mean, obviously it's correct in terms of the physical dangers that were attendant with that expansion. People did die. It was very dangerous work. Do you think that the individuals were as heartless as this film makes you out to have to be in order to be a success?
2: I would say... No. And I think that that's actually one of the weaknesses of this film is that the characters are so over the top and really caricatures. And you know, if you read biographies of the robber barons and my favorite robber baron is John D. Rockefeller, <laughs> you know, Standard Oil actually plays a role in this film. And, you know, Rockefeller is a really complicated figure because he was ruthless in a number of ways. He was also a very devout Baptist he gave away money from almost the first time he started making money. That wasn't something that just happened later on. He, he wasn't this simple figure of greed. And not to say he wasn't greedy and did bad things, but he was quite complicated. And you could probably say that about a lot of these figures. And this film doesn't totally allow that. It does a little bit in the beginning and then completely goes away from that.
1: I mean, yeah, I do think the characters were really flat in a way, in that they are, to your point, caricatures. I would say for me, I think the problem that I have with it even more is just this: there's sort of this always this conflation that there are bad people and there are good people. And I think that's a real problem because I don't think that's how the world works. I think people are complicated and good people do very bad things or vice versa. And so there's none of... I do feel like that was... A little too black and white when I don't... And I think especially when you're thinking about capitalism, it's very gray when we're thinking about, to your point, like someone like Rockefeller in real life.
0: Well, who are the good people in this movie? In this movie, it seems to me there are bad people and there are worse people. There's not a lot of like goodies who you're rooting for.
2: There is the son who becomes deaf and there is the angelic girl. Who is really the only female in the entire film.
1: That's what I was going to say. The women who were never talked about and the women who are in the background, maybe
0: they're the good With with no lines.
2: And I think, I mean, I will say, I'm pretty sure this film is very self-consciously an all-male film because the first scene of the film, you you have a man holding a baby. Then people keep saying, where's your wife? So I don't think that's necessarily just Paul Thomas Anderson breaking the Bechdel test. I think it's him making a point. You know, and, and 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 to be fair you know at, at that stage in American capitalism, although women certainly did work and they certainly did work in factories, obviously the leading figures were men
0: so so we do have a bunch of men in this movie, and there's obviously one main character and then one adversary in Eli's Sunday. Everyone else is kind of sketched in i was particularly struck on the second viewing of this movie uh how Paul Thomas Anderson hired Kieran Hines, who's one of the great actors of his generation, to basically just stand there and do nothing all movie. And you're like, okay, so this, there you go. Kieran Hines, like, I think he had like two lines in the whole movie. And one of them is like, I'm with him.
1: (laughs) And I think it was, are you taking your brother to go have this conversation (laughs) instead of me?
0: So Kieran Hines had a lot of like acting to do just by standing there because he suddenly couldn't do it by saying lines. But- on one level, it really was and is just this Daniel Day-Lewis vehicle, right? And I think that was how the movie entered the canon, that people looked at this acting feat and said, well, you, were, you, know, you did a lot of acting in this movie, and you're in almost every scene, and congratulations on acting well.
2: And it doesn't help that most of the other actors who do have lines, by which I mean Paul Dano, are just not very good. Like, you know, there's no contest in this film. And the Paul Dano character, I mean, granted, the script is not great for his character, but it is the same note the entire film. There is zero nuance to that character whatsoever. And he doesn't, he's incapable of giving the character any nuance. Whereas I do think, to give Dano Day-Lewis credit, and granted, this is acting with a capital acting, (laughs) but he does make some of the material, I think, better than it actually is.
0: Tell me about family and this whole theme running through the movie that daniel day lewis in buying up and leasing the land that he needs feels the need to pretend to be a family man so he kind of acquires a small child somewhere along the way to use as a prop and then when that prop disappears off on the train to learn sign language he acquires a brother until he decides that he's had enough use for that brother what's going on with that
1: i mean to me that was just sort of like a commentary of america and the idea that this is part of our social fabric in terms of what's socially acceptable and so if he had just been this guy as opposed to like i love the ruse in the beginning when they're going quail hunting and they just kind of show up (laughs) And they're just like randomly like, "Hey, can we quail hunt on your land? Can you give us some bread? Oh, you don't have bread. You know, it's the whole like. I think it's just like this whole persona of like, no, I, I really care about people because I'm a parent, you know. And so, like, I think that's how he ostensibly is this trustworthy figure even though it's interesting like I do love like the fact like Anna to your point like the the women are very skeptical like they're just like where is your wife like why do you have this kid like I feel like he gets that question a lot but only from other women not from men
2: no I I agree I, I mean I think that it partly goes back to that idea of his relationship with family shows how broken he is and we see that at the end of the film but but I agree it's also this idea of like You often hear business people when they are being praised as saying, this person's a family man. No, it's something that humanizes someone. And I think this is clearly commenting on that.
3: I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. We offer you the bond of family that very few oil men can understand.
2: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE.
0: What about the colors? This was so washed out in browns and grays and ochres. I believe it was filmed largely in West Texas around Marfa, which is one of the most beautiful landscapes in the world. And you kind of get a hint of that, but not really. And... You would also kind of think that in a movie, the title of which is There Will Be Blood, there might be some actual blood in the movie. There might be like a splash of red somewhere. But I don't even remember that.
1: Everyone's really dirty. It's like, there will be blood, but there's no water. Like, I just, that to me was like what struck me more than the lack of the landscape, just sort of like the griminess of the whole thing.
2: Yeah, and and I would also say, in a way, you, you, there's a number of scenes where people are covered in oil, and the oil is like that blackness that blood actually in real life often is. I mean, obviously, this is blacker because it's oil, but I kind of think that that's supposed to be, to a certain extent, this is the blood.
0: And then he, he cleanses, he has that weird baptismal thing in the pacific ocean yeah i i didn't really understand that scene you understand all of the christian symbolism better than i do anna
2: yeah no i mean i i I do think that there that is the moment too where he initially it's when he is connecting with this person who he thinks is his brother and he is being humanized slightly and, and there is this sense of you know a cleansing but then he goes back and after he's discovered that his brother is lying to him it, you know, which is interesting because obviously that that's not representing any type of a cleansing. If anything, it's like, um, you know, parroting the baptismal ritual.
1: Can I ask you guys a question? Yeah. I wonder what role you think the brother serves because he is adds a lot more texture to the story. It's bizarre to me that he decides to confide in the brother after saying, like, I don't like to explain myself. Then all of a sudden, he just, like, takes this complete stranger and then just starts, like, acting like he can share his life with him. Like, what does that say about his character?
2: I think there is a sense throughout a lot of the film that the Daniel Plainview character is longing for a family, even though he says, I don't like people. I don't want anyone else to succeed. But the relationship he has with his adopted son and how angry he gets when his adopted son abandons him. And then that's that desire he, he has to connect with this person who has this you know, connection with the rest of his family, I think suggests that you know, there is some humanity
0: there. Suddenly when I first saw the movie, I was under the impression that the whole brother subplot was a way of dialing up the Evil of our anti hero, like ju- showing just how heartless he could be, because we didn't actually see a completely premeditated and heartless murder up until that point. Like he can do anything and will do anything. On second viewing, I did kind of wonder what that was about, because it seems, even by the sort of Old Testament standards that we ha- supposedly judging this movie by that that was not really condign punishment for like lying about who you are like it didn't even seem that he was that angry about it he just said oh well you know in that case I'm just gonna have to kill you I don't I that 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 bit didn't make a lot of sense to me except I suppose as a way of no, it doesn't even make sense as a way of like setting up the final scene because the final scene would be even more shocking if the murder came out of nowhere.
2: It's true, but I do think that violence also does often come for almost no reason in this film. Like, the first time that he attacks the Eli Sunday character, you understand why he's doing it, but it seems a little bit overdone. When that character then attacks his father, it again seems like way too much, and where is this coming from? And then even the ending... You know why does he feel the need to beat this person's head in with bowling pins? You know, there's not really any reason for it. And again, just to go, I'll just keep doing my Bible stuff. There is potentially also the kind of Cain Abel, this idea of you know, man, the brother kills. This is the step in man's you know unfortunate development.
0: Wait, wait, expand on that because again, I'm I'm not, I, I didn't go to Sunday school.
2: So, you know, Adam and Eve. Partly, I could be wrong about this because I haven't read, you know, uh, this part in a while. But, you know, Adam and Eve have these sons or it's like their children have children. It's, like
1: it's their Abel. kids. Cain and Abel are their kids. Yeah. that's
2: And I think it's Cain kills Abel. I can't even remember why it is he kills him, but it's not for a good reason. I think to a certain extent, it represents you, you have the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. And then this is another instance of this kind of, you know, what that means. And what that means is this violence between humans. And it is this is the, really the first family you have in the Bible and the first family you have, a brother kills his brother. It's not for a good reason. You know, it, it, it's, it, it, I think to a certain extent, it represents you, you have the fall of man in the garden of Eden. And then this is another instance of this kind of, you know, what that means and what that means is this violence between humans. And it is, you, this is the really the first family you have in the Bible and the first family you have a brother kills his brother
1: wasn't it that abel abel they both made sacrifices to god and god liked abel's so cain got mad and then killed cain yeah but i was thinking i feel like it would be better and this doesn't fit either like i was thinking if we were going to go with a biblical brother analogy i would have gone with jacob and esau not jacob and esau who's jacob and is it jacob and esau where uh, jacob takes esau's birthright They fool the dad because he's blind, and then Jacob's mom, like, to just make it everything even more messed up, right? Like, she encourages him to cheat because that's her favorite son, the younger son, to steal his birthright. But I feel like they don't, we don't get any of that nuance with these two brothers. It's just weird. Maybe it is, you're right, maybe it is more of a Cain and Abel, but it's just sort of like, why, I I agree with you. I feel like, I don't really understand, like, it's just sort of like, did you need to kill him?
0: You know, why can't we all just get along? There isn't a very aggressive, and this is where the I hate other people, I just want to compete with other people thing comes in, right? There is this very aggressive, n- not so much narcissism, it's just like self-centered drive that Plainview has, that he needs to go off and beat everyone and make lots of money and come out on top in every relationship that he has and i think anna's absolutely right that that's the sort of anti-capitalist message of the movie right is the idea that in order to be financially successful you need to have that kind of very horrible competitive drive and i'm not i mean that i that certainly doesn't seem to be true Today, I'm not sure it was ever true. And, yeah, I think I think you're right that we look at this movie in vain, trying to find some sort of, like, nuance and complexity to that. Yeah,
2: because even, like, I'm going to go back to Rockefeller. Even, you know, Rockefeller, who obviously, like, puts all of his competition out of business, he, he creates this trust. The reason he does that is because the early days of the oil industry – when you had this constant price spikes and people would run into the industry and run out of the industry and overproduce. And it was impossible to grow an industry in that environment. So his whole idea was like, look, the only way we, we develop an industry is if one person's essentially controlling all of it. So why not be me? And you know, and he you know quite clearly says this. And yes, you could argue that that is him just justifying his desire to destroy all these other people. And granted, there, there could be some of that. But again, I would just argue that it's, it's just not as simplistic as this person who this Er Er-man who wants
0: to conquer all, and that is it. Nyla, how about you? You can see a few more redeeming features in this movie, surely, than Anna can.
2: I mean, I I don't know what
1: redemptive... um, It's hard to think of the redemptive aspects of this. I think, for me, the redemptive aspects of the film are more just that it's an ability... It's sort of a lens into this era of America that we often, uh, I think, are... Completely romanticized, right? And I think it fits so well into the American mythology of capitalism and the idea that everyone thinks that if I go on a lucky quail hunt, I too can become a millionaire. To me, that's the more redemptive part of it, is just that exploration. I struggle to find something particularly redemptive within. I'm gonna have to think about that one.
0: No, but I think that, I think that's right. That he, what we have here is it's kind of a revisionist take on that era and that time in American history. And when people laud it as a time of American greatness, you then look at it close up and you're like, "There's really nothing great going on here. All of these people are terrible," and maybe that's a message that is worth being reminded of that there were terrible people back then. Or maybe that, maybe it's not, I don't know. They're all fictional.
2: (laughs) Pre-OSHA. Although it is based like loosely on some real people. It was involved in like a teapot dome scandal under Harding. That's what the book oil is actually based on. And so the film is loosely based on.
1: Wow. I haven't heard about the teapot dome scandal in a while, but
2: yeah, it was basically a bribery scandal for land related to, And I think the the town that this is actually supposed to be is like Huntington Beach, California.
0: Oh, you mean where where the pipeline ends up?
4: Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
2: Oh, there's actually one interesting thing is there's a point in the film where he's giving the spiel and he's talking about all the things that this drilling is going to bring to the town. You know, this education and advancement and and he's right, obviously. I mean, this is what industrialization did bring not only to this town, but to America. However, it, it was a very violent process and a lot of people died and were exploited. And, and I do think that that is actually a, one of the more interesting scenes. Now to my mind,
3: uh, it's an abomination to consider that any man, woman or child in this magnificent country of ours should have to look upon a loaf of bread as a luxury. We're gonna dig water wells here. Water wells means irrigation. Irrigation means cultivation. We're gonna raise crops here where before it just simply wasn't possible. You're gonna have more grain than you know what to do with. Bread will be coming right out of your ears, ma'am. New roads, agriculture, employment, education. These are just a few of the things we can offer you. And I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, that if we do find oil here, and I think there's a very good chance that we will. This community of yours will not only survive, it will flourish.
1: I think to me, what I felt like was missing out of that is we never see that. Like, we don't see the town. It's like I was kind of expecting we were going to have this sort of like fast forward to like the town really. Although when he eats in that restaurant, is that supposed to be in the town?
2: You know, I think so, but I'm not I'm not sure.
1: So maybe that's like a, oh, look, you can get steak dinners in a hotel. But I just, I wanted to, I was hoping we would see more of that as opposed to just sort of like the church that the preacher built.
2: And then his house later on, inside
0: his house, Is his Xanadu. Was that, do you think, in... California, his, like, lovely California retirement near the coast? Or was that still out in the hard scrabble oil field plains? Where was the house?
1: I felt like there was, like, a water scene. Was I not? think it was in California. In my california. mind, it seemed california
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Everyone gets out if they can from that miserable existence.
2: One last thing, and I'm One sure you'll be thing. over-reading into the film, as clearly evidenced by this entire conversation. But the film ends in 1927. And I'm sure they probably just picked that date because it actually had some importance in the Teapot Dome scandal trial. But it's actually a really interesting date to pick because the roaring 20s, you know, you had a mild recession in 26, 27, but it was really through 26, 27 where you had significant profit growth. So even though you had the stock market going up, you also had significant profit growth. And so it really wasn't really going out of whack. But that was the moment when in 27, when the stock market really became divorced, and it was the beginning of the end of this era of American capitalism, because that ends in the crash, that ends in the depression, that era of American capitalism where you had incredibly small government would never return.
1: So that's what's finished.
2: So that I think is that—that's my attempt to uh, make it make give the film a uh, more interesting meaning.
0: So let me ask you about that because that—that that is actually on point for a Slate Money episode. First question, why is Eli Sunday so desperate when he comes to Daniel Plainview at the end? It seems that he's lost all of his money in some kind of speculative disaster. But from what you were saying, that was like two years later.
2: So you did have a mild recession, I think, like towards the end of 26, part of 27. So there was a little it was it was very it was mild, but I think. Think that that's what they're referring to. Now, of course, the the major point where where the economy falls apart is in uh, you know obviously like '29 and then the '30s. But I, I think that that's what that references to.
0: And then the other question is, in just just in terms of the sort of economic history of America, the two industries, the only industries we see in this movie are oil and railroads. Is that correct? Are those basically the industries that? drive the expansion of the United States in the early decades of the 20th century?
2: Well, you obviously had steel to help build all those things. It's also because the relationship between oil and the railroads was really important because part of the reason Rockefeller was able to gain his dominance was because he had these sweetheart deals with the railroads. And so they charged him way less than everybody else because he shipped so much. And that helped him put everybody else out of business. So I think that's partly also why you would always see those two together.
0: Right so the the railroad is something that plainview has a very conflicted relationship with because it allows him to expand his empire but it's also an avatar of stand of the hated competition from standard oil and his great gambit the big sort of life defining gamble that he makes and succeeds in making is to abjure the railroads and to say I'm going to build a pipeline all the way to Huntington Beach and that seems to be the most important thing in his life more than certainly more than any I mean we don't really get much feel for any family he never falls in love he certainly doesn't seem to appreciate his house very much it's just let me stick it to the railroad and to Standard Oil and I'll do something else with Union Oil. It's like, why is Union better than Standard, you know?
4: He just seems
1: so bitter about the shipping costs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's like Star Wars is about like a trade dispute and and There Will Be Blood is about shipping costs. To
2: be fair though, shipping costs were actually like legitimately a really big deal. (laughs) But yeah, but I also feel like, you know, he introduces himself saying, I am an oil man. When Standard Oil tries to say, we're going to buy you out, he says, well, what am I going to do? It is his his entire identity.
1: He also seemed to really take pride in the fact that, like, he's like this one man operation. Right. And that he runs everything. And so he will run the drilling like he will not only does he and he's out surveying like there's so much surveying that goes on. It's like a survey lobby was really strong in this movie. Like, There's like, you know, there's like survey, but he does it all himself. And I think that's also again, I feel like that's part of the mythology of like, yeah, like you you as your one person become this multi million dollar corporation if you could just work hard enough to survey the land and first find find the oil, survey the land, drill. Is that also is that how they did it? Like did they really just like have a fire that blew up and then people died and that's how they knew they had Got the oil?
2: Not entirely sure. I'm guessing they probably tried to not have people die.
0: <laughs>
2: but uh, I was just going to say, but jumping off of what you just said, this focus on this like individual, which again, obviously American mythos, but also in the oil industry, because when Ida Tarbell wrote her screed about, I don't mean screed, I mean, it is a screed, but it was relatively fair, about Standard Oil, it was really because she was, and many people were so upset about what he did to small producers, to these individuals, and actually her father was um, a like an individual producer, which was part of the reason that she was so upset. The film, like, he, as you said, he wants to both be this enormous corporation to compete with Standard Oil and just be an individual.
0: So, Nyla, you were telling me that you had, like, an oil derrick in your backyard in your aunt's backyard in my trinidad. grandmother
1: so my family's from trinidad so that was also like my little like my sort of background interest like i have cousins who work in the oil industry in trinidad so i really want to talk to them about like um have you guys seen this but no my grandmother growing up um my grandparents on uh, my mom's side they had a little oil spout in their backyard and i would always go out there and you could see like the little black Like, I don't know why I have a very clear, distinctive childhood memory of, like, this, like, mound that had all these, like, bottle caps sort of, like, embedded into it. So it must have. But then there was oil coming out of the top. But this is always, like, a big story in our family that my grandparents never owned the oil rights to the land. So even though they own the house and the property, I guess whoever sold it to them retained the oil rights. So... It's just a, it's just like a byproduct of having Trinidadian heritage that I was like kind of interested in the oil part of that.
0: Did someone, some horrible capitalist drink your grandparents' l- milkshake? Well, <laughs> That's they were like sitting the on top of. Line. <laughs> they were sitting on top of all of this oil, and they could never monetize.
1: Yeah, I don't think it was that big.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people kept on saying a lot for years. I drink your milkshake, and yeah, I, I guess. I mean, there aren't that many memorable lines. It's definitely the most memorable line. If you have a milkshake,
3: and I have a milkshake, and I have a straw, there it is. That's a straw, you see. Watching. My straw reaches a the room. And starts to drink your milkshake. I drink. Your milkshake.
2: I drink it up. And apparently, um, sorry, my fun facts, but apparently in the trial documents related to the Teapot Dome scandal, someone mentions a milkshake and Paul Thomas Anderson read that. and He was like, this word seems to make no sense in this period. And so that's part of the reason.
1: I think probably the most horrifying scene to me was when he forces the son to drink the alcohol milkshake. That was bad. Like, I mean, obviously killing the people is bad, but I was like, oh, I don't want to watch. I I did feel like I spent a lot of this watching this with my hand over my mouth. Like,
2: what is happening now? I literally, the end, almost had to, like, cover my ears because it was just, yeah, it, it was too much.
0: Too much. Too much in service of not enough. Most of this season has been good movies that we loved. I feel like this is the first time we've arrived at meh. But that's okay. Not all of them need to be good.
1: This isn't the feel-good movie of 2007?
0: <laughs> like, I don't even think it was the feel-good movie of, like, the one-hour window that it was released in. It, yeah. Yeah. And he can do moments of grace, Paul Thomas Anderson. He just didn't in this one.
1: I mean, I would put it in, like, if you're thinking about pandemic viewing slate money fans like I, I feel this this fits
0: yeah no how does it fit you don't want to watch this during a pandemic maybe you do maybe maybe it's like one of those things where you grew up you know with your grandparents sitting on a bunch of oil and everyone told you this was a great movie and so now you need to watch it but i would say probably given our druthers we wouldn't necessarily recommend this one um anna you you really didn't like it did you
2: no really didn't
0: and, and Nyla, if you had to give it like a letter grade, where would it come out for you?
2: Oh, I would I would give it a
1: B. A B? B minus, maybe. But no, I'd give it a B. I'd go straight with a B. All
0: right. Well, Nyla Boodoo, thank you so much for coming on Slate Money Goes to the Movies. And I, I will say, insofar as we um, ended up forcing you to sit through two and a half hours of the movie Browns that i and picked ochres. it was your choice no one picked it for you so you can't blame me for that one it's been awesome having you on and yes everyone must listen to you on axios today every morning at some crack of dawn you come out so early
1: just 5:30 in the morning for all of those hardworking capitalists who can early start on their day <laughs>